48 to 52 percent of the homicides in our uh, country over the last several years have been domestic violence related and that's an underreporting. He was living with his uncle then his mum wanted him back so within three weeks that boy was dead. The police arrested her partner, her former partner and when it was time to bail him someplace they brought him to her address and five hours later she was dead. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In May of last year, a delegation of researchers from Fordham Law School's Leitner Center for International Law and Justice went to New Zealand to look at domestic violence in that country. In New Zealand, rates of domestic violence are very high. Here's the Leitner Center's executive director, Jean-Marie Fenrich. It is a very big issue, surprisingly, perhaps, for um, people who aren't aware of this in New Zealand and in Australia both. I think that the rates of domestic violence in those two countries are the highest out of any developed country. I think the statistic normally given for New Zealand is that one in three women in the course of their lifetime will experience domestic violence in some form. One segment of New Zealand's population is particularly affected by domestic violence. With the Maori population, the rate is higher still. It's three times um, more likely that a Maori woman will be assaulted by an intimate partner than um, a non-Maori woman. In the next half hour, we're going to be looking at New Zealand's domestic violence problem through the eyes of the Leitner Center's researchers and through the eyes of the Maori organizations that are fighting violence in their communities. During their time in New Zealand, teams of researchers looked at different groups, not just the Maori, but everyone, in different areas across the country. The group that we're following, though, went to the north, to a city called Whangarei and a town called Ruakaka. Their guides were two women from an organization called Amakura. Kia ora mai tato. My name's Di Grinnell. I'm the executive director for Amakura. We're an indigenous violence prevention initiative based in the north of New Zealand. Kia ora. My name's Annie Pittman. I'm the advocacy and legal analyst for Amakura Family Violence Prevention Consortium. We'll be hearing from Ani and Di throughout the show. We'll also be hearing more from Jean-Marie Fenrich and from law student researcher Mani Mustafi. He kept an audio diary of his experiences throughout the trip, and he interviewed Phil Paikia for the program. Māori are what we call tangata whenua, or indigenous population of New Zealand. We have a, a range of tribes or tribal nations. So the Māori population would be the equivalent in the United States to our Native Americans. They have this concept called Fano, which is their extended family. And so it was really the most important social unit. There's the idea, maybe in New York, that you know the nuclear family was essentially like a wall of privacy around it. The modern concept of Fano is far more extended and fluid. To a certain extent, your business is everybody's business. But at the same time, your suffering is everybody's suffering. In current times, there's really been a lot more emphasis on nuclear family as a result of urbanization. And people have, in many cases, lost contact with their fanau and with their marae, which is the unit um, or the special place that certain fanau would have as a meeting place um, for the community. And a lot of the social ills that are currently facing the Maori, Maori service providers attribute to the fact that people have lost this connection with their whanau or their extended family and have started to think more like Pakeha or the white European settlers 
in focusing on the on the nuclear family. We're an indigenous people group, so we have uh, a number of uh, factors in common with other indigenous people groups. Significant conflict over lands, over how laws were administered, and significant decimation of our population through introduced um, diseases, measles, influenza, uh, sexually transmitted infections, um, the introduction of alcohol and tobacco, of which we had neither, and of guns. Uh, So our population reduced significantly, and by the end of the 1800s, there's a well-known or infamous quotation from our parliamentary record talking about the responsibility to smooth the pillow of a dying race. So there was an expectation that we were we were on our way out. I think that pretty much every social indicator that um, you don't want to score highly on, the Maori score highly on. So in terms of unemployment, lack of education, alcoholism, drug abuse, rates of incarceration, um, violence, literally pretty much every social indicator um, that you do not want to score high on, the Maori would get a high mark. There's like six boys in there. and I mean, these kids, like one of them was 12 and was already an alcoholic. They just come from really, really violent households. We don't do well on social indicators of, of all kinds across health, education, and justice. Uh and this is very much linked into the systematic dismantling of our own indigenous systems of law, uh, our own indigenous systems of of balance, family life, social interaction, compounded by significant institutional racism and dislocation for many of us from our land and social structures. They would say that domestic violence is one of a number of social ills that has resulted through the process of colonization, the disempowerment that the Maori population has felt as a result, the um, land that's been taken from them, that they don't have sources of income in the way that they otherwise would have. There's a particular um, grief or dislocation of spirit for people who then become removed from those sources of well-being and for whom the sources of support are removed. And that is productive of situations where violence is more likely to occur and for us that's compounded by significant continued socioeconomic and educational disparity which is um, clearly identified as one of the determinants, social determinants both of health but of other forms of well-being. For the Maori, and we heard this over and over again, that it's not sufficient to address the problem of domestic violence as one of intimate partner relations, that their problems are so vast and so connected to one another that you really have to look at the whole population and say, how did we end up in this position and what can we do to change the course for our future and for our children's future in a way that's going to change all of these patterns, not just domestic violence? We work with a frame where probably the primary task that that we have within our population is to dispel the illusion that violence is normal, that it's acceptable, or that it's culturally valid. So today, day three, we went to the Breen Bay Community Trust in Ruakaka. And Ruakaka is about 25, 30 minutes outside of Whangarei. Whangarei is something in the United States we would call maybe a town, and 
what in New Zealand is called a city. And Ruakaka is what we would consider rural. I mean, you saw cows and sheep, a lot of open fields, um, a lot of space between houses, huge fields of grass in between each building. But when we asked our tour guide, Gloria, is this considered rural? She said, oh, no, this is the suburbs. So <laughs> that's what Ruakaka was. And the Breen Bay folks were just these amazing people. So Sue and Phil, who were in Breen Bay, they are just their approach to dealing with family violence was really hands-on. You know, somebody calls and says there's a problem at a house and with a family, they show up and knock at the door. You know, if there's an incident of family violence that's reported, Phil, who's this you know, huge guy with a penetrating stare. He'll just, you know, he'll call that guy in. Just around the corner. But and as Sue says, have him in tears in about 30 minutes. <laughs> are, you, are you recording? I am. Oh, yeah. yeah Kilda, my name is uh, yep. Phil Poikia, and um, I'm one of the volunteer workers here at the Green Bay Community Support Trust. Well, I, I, I got involved oh, okay. to. Um, uh, Men beyond violence uh, a few years ago because I'm I'm an ex gang member, and uh, when you, if you look up on the wall there, that that that's me there, uh, there on the ground, and uh, that's me lying there on the ground, and those were some of the guys that uh, I was the president of the Black Power. Now you probably wonder, Black Power, I'm I'm as white as you are, but uh, that's just the way it was, and uh, so I was a perpetrator of violence myself. Been a party to attempted murder, and uh, he, he, you know everything that went with that um, uh, domestic violence, uh, violence on, on other men. And uh, my wife uh, left me because of the uh, because of my lifestyle, and so if things had to change for me, and uh, so I decided to move away from from my home, from my t from my hometown, and move to a different place where I wasn't easily influenced by my friends. So uh, I stayed down in the South Island for two to three years with my family until I was strong enough to say no to my, to my gang associates. And then basically that's where change started for me. Um, you see on the wall here, um, I hang these pictures up here to remind me why I do the work that I do. You can see this, that young boy there from Happiness to Help. It's a healthy young boy, three years old, same age as my, my moko, my grandchild. Um, he's happy there with that. Uh, that's his um, uncle. He was living with his uncle. Then his mum wanted him back. So within three weeks, that boy was dead. That's his beaten body on the morgue table there. Got beaten to death with a baseball bat by his mum and uh, stepfather. And uh, yeah, I, was, uh, I cried when I saw that. And I hanged it up there to remind me you know, why I do what I do. You know, if we, if we can prevent uh, uh, kids being beaten to death like that in our community, then uh, my job's been been worth it. Um, those men up there that you see uh, are all changed men. Uh, they're all members of of a gang, and the two big guys mm -hmm. here are members of a rival gang. Both those men are changed men. Uh, this one down here was also the president of the mongrel mob. Uh, he's a changed man now. You can tell just just by looking at him. 
And uh, those are the sorts of men that uh, that work in communities like ours that uh, try to effect change. And they do that by leading by example. And basically that's that's what I do too. You know, I not only talk uh, about my change, I actually live it. That's my lifestyle now. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Kia ora. The Domestic Violence Act of 1995 is New Zealand's like primary piece of legislation designed to prevent and reduce domestic violence and family violence in general. Um, so the act, you know, seems to have its strengths and weaknesses. And the more we learn about it, the more we see how it implementation of the act on the lo- on the sort of local level, on the level of the police and the courts, is really sort of um, incomplete. And more importantly, from Maori women up here in the north, what we're learning is that the act doesn't necessarily always address issues pertinent to Maori communities. It doesn't necessarily, and its implementation in specific, doesn't necessarily see what the concept of whanau, a lot of the Maori women we spoke to feel that New Zealand policy and that act in particular aren't quite capable or adept at addressing this broader notion of a whanau. Up until now, we've mostly been talking about why family violence happens among the Maori in New Zealand. But, of course, domestic violence is a crime, and, in fact, it's also considered to be a violation of international human rights standards. That's why the Leitner Center researchers were there. I spoke with Jean-Marie Fenrich about national law, international law, and domestic violence in New Zealand. It's a human rights issue because New Zealand has signed on to a number of international human rights treaties. Almost all of these treaties provide a guarantee of women's equality and prohibit discrimination against women. There's one treaty in particular that's probably most pertinent. It's the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Under that treaty, which New Zealand has voluntarily signed onto and is now binding on New Zealand, it obligates state parties to take all measures, legislative measures and other measures, to eliminate discrimination against women. Um, They also have to take measures to eliminate stereotypical, stereotypical views of what men and women should do, what their roles should be, to eliminate all cultural practices that may discriminate against women. And violence against women has now been interpreted to be a form of discrimination against women. It's violence that disproportionately affects women or where women are targeted because they're women um, for this violence, and that's a form of discrimination against women. And that's why it's a human rights issue, because New Zealand has voluntarily signed on to be obligated in these ways. So in doing this research um, on domestic violence in New Zealand, did you find that they had been adhering to the treaty, or what did you find? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, because New Zealand, and I should, I'm glad you asked this, because I should make this point, New Zealand is generally a good citizen, in the international human rights world. They've signed on to most of the treaties. They make a real effort to comply with their obligations. And it was interesting to go there to focus on a topic 
where they made an effort. And so our investigation was really looking to see how had they gone about addressing the problem and had they done a good job. And their obligations with with respect to domestic violence are really twofold. One, they have to take measures to prevent domestic violence. And they have to take measures to punish those who violate um, women's rights in that way. And that would be mostly to prosecute um, perpetrators of domestic violence, to investigate cases of domestic violence, to provide compensation for victims where appropriate. So they have those obligations with respect to domestic violence. They're actually making efforts to comply with their obligations in these different ways. They have a statute that prohibits domestic violence, that provides for orders of protection for women who are in these situations. Um, They are providing funding for different programs to educate the public about domestic violence. And our the report that we're writing, based on our, our findings, shows that they're making all these efforts, but there are problems with the way that they're approaching the problem. So, for instance, they have a statute that prohibits domestic violence and that would require police to respond in instances of domestic violence when there's been a breach of a protection order, for instance. And there's been a real problem with enforcement. So they have a great law in the books. In terms of how it's being applied, it's very problematic. Um, To give you one example, police in many places in New Zealand are unwilling to serve the orders of protection. So once a woman has gone through the entire process of getting an order of protection, which is not necessarily easy, a lot of times, I shouldn't say a lot of the times, but in many circumstances, police have simply refused to serve the orders of protection because it's not something that they feel particularly strongly about. In other cases, even where the order of protection has been served, they won't enforce the order of protection. And I think one particularly galling example of this was from a woman that we met with um, named Annie Pittman spoke of her niece in a situation that happened in Fangaray where her niece was 19 years old, had a a two-month-old baby um, with someone who had been very abusive, who she had gotten an order of protection against. That person was arrested for fighting in the street, nothing to do with her niece, whose name was Ray Pye. The police arrested her partner, her former partner, and when it was time to bail him someplace, they brought him to her address, despite the fact that she had an order of protection against him, which included a provision saying he was not allowed on the premises. The police brought her, brought him to her address, and five hours later, she was dead. He had gone in. He, um, he ended up murdering her, and then he hung himself in the apartment. And so in that instance, the police actually brought the perpetrator to her house despite an order of protection. And I think there are a number of cases, um, perhaps not quite so galling, where the police have failed to enforce orders of protection and with you know really terrible consequences. Is it just that they don't really feel like it's worth enforcing, or is it that they feel like this is people's responsibility to deal with on their own and they don't want to be a part of it? I think there's a couple of things. I think, one, um, it's not something that many of them want to be involved in. I think there's been 
a lack of training, and that's one of the criticisms that we've made in the report, is that the government really has to have a nationwide training policy. So the police that we met with in different places said, you know, in their six-week training course, domestic violence was covered in one place for four hours, in one place for five and a half hours, in one place for six hours. But clearly they need more training on domestic violence. I think with the Maori communities, there's a problem more broadly in terms of police relations with Maori communities. And I think that police are not necessarily so inclined to respond to um, calls from certain places. And I think on the Maori part, there also is a tendency now to not want to involve the police in cases of domestic violence. And we heard that, that, that you can't take the domestic violence and the police response to domestic violence out of the broader relationship that Maori population have with police. And it has not been a particularly good one. And I think one comment that was made to us was that the Maori people were very happy that their police were not allowed to carry guns because if they did, their population would be decimated. And so I think that's indicative of how people feel. And so what people said to us is women are afraid to call because what's going to happen? Like, one, are the police going to come? Two, what kind of violence are they, are they going to inflict when they arrive? And so whether that's entirely accurate or not, that's the Maori perception of what their relationship is like with the police, and they don't feel like they can count on them. A somewhat related problem, but it's not really so much the police fault, is that we had heard um, from several people also problems with the emergency response system. So they have, like we have in the United States, 911. If something goes wrong, you call 911 and the police or, you know, medical services, whoever it is, arrives on your doorstep. They have something similar that's 111. But for many of the Maori population who live in areas, um, rural areas or areas far from Auckland, um, the call center is now based in Auckland. And when 111 calls come in, the Auckland operators have no idea where these places are with Maori names. And so they said that sometimes it can take hours for a response to come. And at that point, the woman's dead or gone. I mean, these things that, so they feel like there's just no state support in that way from their perspective. Um, and so on that front, it would seem that you should have call centers perhaps more locally based so that when you're calling, the people will know where it is that you need them to go and they'll know where that is. So in this case, government incompetence is a human rights issue. That's right. So the government is providing a service that they should provide, but they're providing it in a way that's not effective for certain communities. That would be our critique. Therefore, they need to change the government response so that it's more effective for all communities. That was Jean-Marie Fenrich. And from WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead at 7.30 this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. First, though, when you talk about human rights or violence issues, they can come to seem intractable. State institutions can be reformed. Government services can be improved. But nothing's going to change unless something's done on a local level. In New Zealand's Maori communities, activists are looking for solutions to their problems that are specific to the needs of their own communities. Organizations like Bream Bay, which we heard about earlier, provide services in Maori communities that are designed to deal with violence in ways that take into account the specific social problems plaguing the Maori, that make those seeking refuge feel comfortable, and that use Maori social structures and values as a framework in serving their clients. Mm-hmm. 
today we went to see the Natehine Health Trust in Whangarei, and we met with their Family Start team and their Restorative Justice team. Natehine is what I would describe as a for Maori, by Maori organization. Their mission is to provide services in a way that they see is culturally and socially appropriate for Maori. Like a, Ma- a lot of Maori organizations, Natehine work in a way that's very conscious of the co- very conscious of the country's colonial history and you know they see that the violence and poverty in their community is something that's really sort of been brought in by that history and what I saw was this sort of institution that is you know sort of digging into a cultural heritage that emphasizes the family emphasizes community and it looks to sort of elders and customs as part of the justice process. So they were sort of part revivalists and part health services providers. And I don't think that they see those things as exclusive at all. But when you start the day, you go to their pofuri and they sing these songs of prayer and traditional songs and they give these sort of speeches to start off their day. Pofuri is a really important part of Maori protocol, and it usually happens at a marae, which is a, sort of a community center slash meeting hall slash um, religious religious um, place. And the the concept of the pofuri is sort of establishing who you are and, and your common purpose for being there. Here's this community in New Zealand, in Whangarei, which is supposed to be, as one of our um, acquaintances in Whangarei said, they're at the top of the bottom. They're at the top of all the social indicators that you don't want to be at the top of. And Nadehine started out in like a shack in a rural area, and what we went to was a full-fledged um, community center with a, with this very impressive health clinic with these sharp, trained professionals, all wearing these matching red suits, like this sense of this sense of we are a unit, we are a team, you know. And they have a radio station in there that that broadcasts health news, and they they deal with young mothers with their first children, sort of being support mechanisms and treating them about teaching them about nutrition and child rearing. They provide all these services. Before the government was funding any Maori-specific programs, the Maori people simply weren't accessing these programs. That derived largely from two problems. One is that they didn't feel safe culturally in the non-Maori programs. Um, so things that people who weren't Maori might not even realize were problematic for the Maori made them feel uncomfortable. And when you're not feeling comfortable in this space, they weren't then going to leave a situation of domestic violence, for instance. And the other thing that they said is that there are institutionalized forms of racism in the government programs that the government may not even have necessarily perceived, but that for Maori made them feel very shameful. And so there might be certain uh, Maori practices. And I think one example that was given to us was that Maori families tend to sleep together in, in smaller quarters than perhaps the government would suggest. I think what they said is that the government 
policy now recommends that each child have their own room and the parents have a separate room. And for Maori people, this simply wasn't possible or isn't possible financially. And when you're told that your living arrangement that you have your children in is problematic or could cause health problems, cause health problems, it causes a great deal of shame. And what it ends up doing is driving the Maori underground, that they don't want to acknowledge how many children they have, what their living situation is. And as a result, they're not really being honest with the, the full array of services that they require for their particular situation. What we heard is that when you have a Maori person that you're meeting with instead at these service providers who understands your situation, that the Maori are much more likely to be honest and to talk about what's really going on. And as a result, they can actually address the problems that they have. I think one of the key things for those of us who work within our communities is also that we are intimately linked with those who are both the victims and the perpetrators of the violence. We don't have a luxury of social distance. We're linked through genealogy. We're linked through geographical proximity. And um, we bury, we mourn, we get up the next day and we go back to work. And so that immediacy um, is certainly um, something that means the challenge is always there. But we also have the joy that many people don't have because we know the resilience and the brilliance that the media don't tend to portray of our people and so we know what care and capacity we have and we believe we know how to unleash that. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find out more about the Leitner Center for International Law and Justice and about their annual research trips at leitnercenter.org. That's L-E-I-T-N-E-R. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives. They're both at WFUV.org. Producing the show this week with help from Amakura and the Leitner Center for International Law and Justice, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.